0: Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us. I'm Karen Davenport. I'm Director of Health Policy for the Center of American Progress. And I'm first going to ask you to turn off BlackBerry's, pagers, cell phones. Um, one reason is they interfere with the, the microphones, um, so we don't want that kind of, of sound. And then obviously, um, so we can all focus. <coughs> um, I want to thank you for being here this morning. By all indicators, um, We appear to be in the aftermath of a historic election poised to once again take on the challenge of providing health, of pursuing healthcare reform that guarantees affordable coverage for all Americans, kind of the holy grail for progressive policy geeks like me. Um, According to the, the Kaiser tracking polls, when 2008 started, healthcare tied a close second to the economy as a top voting issue in voters' minds. And in October, um, you know the election really looming. It was it was still second, although you know now th- somewhat farther behind the economy um, as a whole, and tied with Iraq as a, a top is- issue in, in voters' minds. And between January and October, you know so much had happened in the in the campaign and in our nation as a whole. Healthcare enjoyed. Top billing through the, the Democratic primary contest in a lot of ways. And then as we entered the general election phase of the campaign, I think it really fell off of the campaign's radar screens and by extension the media's radar screens for a while, only to resurface in the fall. And um, you know, some reports say that Senator Obama spent about 86% of his October advertising budget on healthcare on ads that included healthcare themes. Um, we also saw, obviously, the, the economic earthquake that is still sending out aftershocks if um, the November employment report can be considered a mere aftershock. And some are suggesting that we can't take on health care reform right now, but a majority of the public is still saying that it's more important than ever to look at health care reform given our nation's economic troubles. So with this program, we want to stop step back a little bit from poll numbers and, um, Policy details and look at some of the big components of social change, because healthcare reform definitely is a big social change. And we want to talk a little bit about: to what degree does a sense of crisis enhance our ability to make changes? What kind of influence does the presidency have on social change? What other factors are important in terms of making big changes to our social fabric? We have two speakers today: one a distinguished historian, the other a longtime health policy practitioner to help us determine whether we are experiencing that kind of confluence of factors that could help drive healthcare reform. And my colleague James Quall, who's a senior fellow here at CAP, is releasing a paper today on why healthcare reform is an economic necessity. So to move to the program, Bob Dalek, who is on my right, your left, is an award-winning historian who specializes in the American presidency and in foreign affairs. His most recent works include the new biography, Harry S. Truman, also Lyndon B. Johnson, Portrait of a President, and An Unfinished Life, John F. Kennedy, 1917-1963. to He recently retired as a professor of history from Boston University and has previously taught at UCLA, Columbia University, and other distinguished um, centers of higher learning. Chris Jennings, who is on my left and your right, is more than two-decade-long health policy veteran of the White House, Congress, and the private sector. As president of Jennings Policy Strategies, he provides strategic guidance and policy analysis to clients who share a commitment to affordable, accessible, and accountable healthcare. Prior to founding Jennings Policy Strategies, he served in the White House as a senior healthcare advisor to President Clinton from 1993 to 2001. And before that, on Capitol Hill, was Deputy Staff Director of the Aging Committee for Senator David Pryor. And Chris doesn't include this in his formal bio, but He's been a, a mentor and a career coach for I think most of the health policy professionals in Washington D.C. Um, so Bob is going to start off with some with remarks on um, his view of, of large social changes, how we can you know sort of look at what are some of the dynamics that are in play, and particularly from the perspective of the presidency. Chris will follow with with his remarks that are more specific to healthcare and and the moment that we're facing and hopefully enjoying right now. We'll have a little bit of dialogue between the two of them and then questions and answers. Bob, can you kick
1: us off? Sure, I'm happy to. Thank you very much for that nice introduction. Can you hear me? Good. Um, I should begin by uh, telling an anecdote about my son, uh, who when he was about four or five years old, said to me one day, uh, Daddy said, you're a doctor, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, uh, but not like your doctor, not like your pediatrician. And he said, "Uh, oh, I know that because you're also an historian. Well, I was delighted he could make this distinction at so tender an age. But then he wanted to know, does that mean that you make people in the past feel better? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wanted to tell him that would be a methodological breakthrough. But uh, uh, he was still too young, I think, to quite uh, grasp that. Let me make three points briefly. Does Obama have a chance for some major reform uh, effort here? And I think decidedly so. And if you look to the history for any guidance, I think it can be very helpful in uh, encouraging him to believe that this is a moment when great change can take place. If you look back to. FDR, and to Lyndon Johnson. Both of them represented, I would say, paradigm shifts in the national perspective. Roosevelt, of course, defeated Herbert Hoover, who was, the, at that point in our history, the embodiment of a conservative outlook. And Lyndon Johnson, of course, decidedly defeated one of the great presidential victories in American presidential history. Barry Goldwater. See. Uh, Hoover was seen as someone who was so dead in the water, and that Roosevelt was uh, someone who people felt that was absolutely essential for him to step forward in some dramatic way. And uh, he, he, of course, seized upon the moment to move decidedly ahead to change American society forever. Lyndon Johnson also understood that this was a pivotal moment in American history. Barry Goldwater was seen as the embodiment of a right wing in America, the bumper stickers at the time. His supporters said, in your hearts, you know he's right. And Democrats had bumper stickers that said, yes, far right. And uh, uh, people were terrified of his uh, affinity for a possible nuclear war. He joked, we should think about lobbing one into the men's room of the Kremlin, you see. And uh, people uh, had bumper stickers which said, in your hearts, you know he might, uh, (laughs) because there was so much anxiety about. Well, Johnson understood that this was a moment when he could move forward on a progressive agenda. Now, two things I would say Obama, I believe, needs to think about in terms of our historical experience. First and foremost, if you're going to do major reform, you need to think about creating a consensus in this country for that change. What we've forgotten is that when Franklin Roosevelt came to office in 1933, this country had passed through a period of bitter division. In the 1920s, the country was divided between what were known as the modernists, and the fundamentalists, the urban dwellers and the rural sections of America. And there was such a bit of divide over that, which was reflected in the National Origins Act about immigration, the prohibition legislation, and a variety of other things, including the uh, uh, case in Tennessee about evolution. Now, Roosevelt knit this country together. He responded to the Depression, and he created a, a sense of shared purpose, which was absolutely vital to putting across the major bills, 15 majors of, of pieces of legislation in the first 100 days. And of course, in 1935, Social Security. Social Security is of such a central part of the national experience now. Anybody who tried to get rid of it would be committing political suicide, because it's a program that reaches across all segments of the society, you see. Johnson understood and made the same point. He put across federal aid to education, for example, elementary, secondary, and higher education. And one of his aides said to him, Mr. President, money is going to go to rich school districts. And he said, that's just fine. We want them to go to all school districts. Because it was his way of saying to the country, this is not simply a poverty program. It's something which is going to affect all Americans. And that, of course, was true of Medicare. Medicare is a piece of legislation, is a program which touches, vitally touches the lives of all Americans, you see. So Johnson understood that. So my first point would be consensus. Second point, and then I'll desist. There's a cautionary tale that Obama should be mindful of which is that war kills reform every time we've had a major war major commitment to a war it has killed off a reform movement in this country populism was done in by the spanish american war progressivism was stopped in the tracks in its tracks by world war 1 roosevelt said that Dr. New Deal has been replaced by Dr. Win the War. Lyndon Johnson saw his great society go a-glimmering with the Vietnam War. You cannot have uh, uh, guns and butter. However much Johnson wanted to do it, he was not able to put that across. And so what I hope Obama will be mindful of is that if he escalates American involvement, in Afghanistan. If that turns into a war which draws down great amounts of blood and treasure, I think it will ruin his possibility, his opportunity, of putting across health care reform and a variety of other reforms which the country wants to see take place. Franklin Roosevelt said in his first inaugural, first things first. I don't have an answer to what we do about Afghanistan. I'm not pretending to be some knowledgeable foreign policy expert who knows exactly what we do. But I do think I know what we shouldn't do, and that is to get deeply enmeshed in another war like we had in Iraq. Or one other point I could make, Harry Truman and Korea. Truman made the mistake of crossing the 38th parallel, and it destroyed his presidency and the opportunity put across the fair deal. Truman had the lowest approval rating of any president in American history, at least since we've had polling data, 22%. Bush has gotten close. I think he was at 24%. When Truman left office, he had a 32% approval rating. That Korean War destroyed his chance to put across the uh, fair deal. And much of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society was a follow through on what Harry Truman had wanted to do. And of course, you may recall as a final point that when Lyndon Johnson signed the Medicare legislation into law, where did he do it? In Independence, Missouri, with Harry Truman sitting next to him. So let me stop there. I think I've uh, offered some points that may be of use in uh, thinking about how we go about future reform now. okay. Oh,
0: and with that cautionary note, um, we'll turn to looking at healthcare reform and our current political climate. Chris?
2: Thank you, Ken. Um, <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry I'm a little bit sick this morning. But um, I wanna talk a little bit about uh I want to take on the pundits and the prognosticators who uh doom and gloom uh in healthcare. And and first before I do that, I'd like to uh acknowledge that many of the reasons that frequently are cited about the challenge of doing health care reform are compelling I mean there are there are real issues Um, they include just to put them on the table uh, deficits uh, and deficits and deficits going up close to maybe next year as high as one trillion dollars debt 10 trillion dollars political polarization uh, competing priorities um, that all of which can um, be cited collectively or individually as reasons why uh, broad health care reform is extremely challenging but today i'm here to give you the nine reasons in 09 why health reform is possible and uh, as i go through and and if not even likely uh, i will say though that at the outset that all health reform if you're talking about comprehensive health reform, it's always more unlikely than likely to get anything done in Washington D.C. But, but I have to say, I am quite optimistic. Here, are the, here are the nine reasons, and I'll do them very quickly. Uh, the first, and, and by the way, I think these all contrast very, very importantly with and positively to the 1993-1994 uh, debate because people like to have some context uh... and i was either had the bad fortune, misfortune or good fortune to to, to be there uh, first is that there is a recognition uh... by uh... leading economists uh, that health care reform uh, must be part of our economic uh, uh... renewal package and uh... this is quite interesting and very different than what we had saw in nineteen ninety three nineteen ninety four when a lot of the economists who were advising even then President Clinton uh suggested that we had to divorce health care reform from deficit reduction and as a consequence pushed off the debate on health care reform after the budget reconciliation discourse that took place. And interestingly, this is one of the least reported uh reasons why health care failed. And when you spend political capital, remember the deficit package passed by one vote on both houses, uh, Vice President Gore had to cast it. He then followed that up, the president, with NAFTA, another very popular policy, and then crime. And then he said, okay, now let's do health care reform. Well, anything, if, if, for those of you who are watching the history of, of Congress, they don't like to make very hard votes, and they certainly like, don't like to do more than one vote a Congress. Uh, that was pushing it. And even if you had a perfect implementation of health care reform, I would argue that the delay and the political capital spent and the environment around, which included, by the way, a sort of uh, a Haiti issue, a Whitewater issue, a whole lot of other issues, um, made it very, very difficult. And in fact, almost miraculous. It's almost miraculous that it went as far uh, as it did. But going back to the economist, the economist, whether it's Ben Bernanke or Larry Summers, uh, or Bob Rubin or uh, Jason Furman or Peter Orzak all these people who uh are uh, advising or giving guidance to the incoming president they all fundamentally believe that healthcare reform must be part of economic renewal not not just for healthcare sake but to make us more competitive to deal with our long-term fiscal challenges very key point point. and one last point i want to talk about the economy is Celinda so lake did a uh exit poll asking uh voters to t- rank for them what was their biggest economic concern. And they listed gas prices, jobs, uh, uh 401k, educational cost, healthcare costs. Healthcare costs was number one of all those reasons. So when we talk about the economy versus healthcare, uh they are extremely interrelated and people get that as well as finally the economists. Secondly, Businesses of all sizes, whether they're large or small, whether they're manufacturing or retail, are are very, very aggressively pushing health care reform in Washington today. Uh for those of you who have been watching major health care or any debate actually in, in Washington, the, fundamentally the generally the, the greatest and most effective tiebreaker in very difficult debates is the business community. And they are now engaged more so than they ever have been. And in fact, you may recall back in 92, 93, 94, it was the NFIB and other small businesses who adamantly opposed health reform. They are now actually completely one aiding this and very much engaged in bar reform and, and, and providing political cover and not just political cover, but demanding something get done. Thirdly, is this whole uh, and very new debate around the issue of quality and value, which is fundamentally um, different than the the normal discussion about cost containment we usually talk about rate regulation or price controls that's how we'll constrain costs but now you have the current cbo director and now the future omb director going around the country talking about the rand study and other studies that project that fully one third of the services that we spend money on today are for health care that do not improve outcomes that do not improve medical outcomes if you apply that one-third percentage to our two point one trillion dollar a year spend, you get seven hundred billion dollars a year and kind of interesting parallel number between uh... the debate around economic stimulus and other issues but but seven hundred billion dollars a year are projected not to be improving outcomes and as a consequence you're seeing not so much a, a big fight between the providers and the manufacturers and the consumer and labor and business, you're seeing it coming together about how do we work towards improving value. And you're seeing that in the debate. And I would suggest that you're going to have to see that in the upcoming debate because people don't want to spend uh, good money after bad. Very important difference. Fourthly, there is an increasing understanding that the uninsured and the underinsured uh, and their challenges have to be addressed not just because it's a moral blight uh, on, on, our, on our country, on our history, on our record, on who we project that we are as a nation, but frankly, it's a necessary precondition to make our healthcare system be far more efficient. And so it's, an, it's no longer a discourse about uh, the moral obligation, it's an economic one. So, for example, you cannot eliminate cost shifting from the uninsured to the insured if you don't cover everyone. So, for example, you can't do prevention well or chronic care management well. When people talk about the drivers of health care costs today, they talk about the chronically ill populations, the 5% incurring 50%, the 10% incurring 80% of our costs. Well, if people go in and out of the system, you can neither prevent that problem nor can you coordinate the, the uh, disease well uh, if you don't have coverage. And thirdly, if you say, as we all do, uh, that insurers should no longer be able to be liberated to discriminate against populations, to underwrite for medical conditions, to apply pre-existing conditions, that they must indeed guarantee issue coverage or they're no longer going to be players in the healthcare system, you really can't get that done if you don't have everyone insured. Because they can argue, and I would suggest in a somewhat compelling way, that how can you require me to insure people who can wait until they're sick to get health care? Okay, I mean, that's a very, very hard case to be made. So for all these reasons, coverage is a, a necessary precondition, to get the policy objectives we all say we want cost and access you cannot do it without covering everyone which is why when you see republicans talk about the issue of of coverage like um, if you look at romney or if you look at governor schwarzenegger they talk about let's address the hidden tax of cost shifting they don't talk about the uninsured i want to go take care of the uninsured they talk about the people who care, which is the people who vote, which are the people who have health care, who are the people who feel that they're paying too much for health care, and they think that the uninsured is increasing that cost. Fifthly, there is already and is an increasing foundation of bipartisan support for health care reform. Whether you, and and it's very interesting if you look at this uh, historically. If you look at the last time we engaged in health care reform, we had a senator from New York who was the chairman of the finance committee who was not exactly a big health care reform advocate. He did not want to do health care reform. He, he, he wanted to do welfare, he wanted to do Social Security, he wanted to do anything but health care. Now we have a chairman of the finance committee who doesn't even wake up without talking about health care reform. And he wants to, and he has a long track record of working on a bipartisan basis out of that finance committee to get things done. But that's not the only example of bipartisanship. You have the Wyden Bennett legislation, for good or for bad. They, people have illustrated that you can get to a policy that covers every single American and can do it affordably, and you can do it on a policy that can attract Republicans and Democrats. You've seen the Bipartisan Policy Center with Senator da- Dashiell Baker. Mitchell and Dole who are now working on recommendations for January to, to for for the uh, Congress and the new administration to consider and you've certainly had the Massachusetts um, policy in which a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature came together to get things done. I mean this these these type of um, bipartisan consensus foundations never existed in 93 and uh and and now they do already before we go into the 2009 debate. Okay. Four quick others. The actual experience of the 1993-1994 debate has has made a positive and important difference to the discourse, to the policy, to the messaging of all candidates. Look at how Senator Obama and Senator Clinton talked about health care. Look at their policy. No longer do they have small business mandates, no longer do they have mandatory alliances, no longer do they have new big federal bureaucracies, no longer do they have rate regulation or premium. Anything that was a policy perspective that had political uh, objections is now gone. The, and moreover, the policy debate and the messaging around the policy prescription is such that it's far less scary. If we've learned anything about the health care reform debate, it is that people don't like the cost of their health care they don't want they want to see change but they don't want to lose what they have until they know what their other alternative is so in other words you saw hillary and then subsequently president-elect obama talk about if you want to keep your health insurance keep it but i'm going to provide you other options a very comforting message that then opens up the door to okay well let's talk about now how you're going to do this very very important seventh the economic crisis uh, and this goes to bob's point actually opens up the door for i think a broader um, debate on on health care reform generally we only do things in this country in response to crisis that tends to be our history uh, crisis and and the environment breeds opportunity the Incoming president has to gauge that and has to prioritize which policy they want to take advantage of. Clearly, that's something he is is very much considering. Certainly Social Security came out of a element of a perception of crisis I think healthcare could as well. Eighth, there is now an increasing understanding and realization in Washington that there is that comprehensive reform may indeed be more viable than incremental health care reform from a policy perspective and from a political perspective and this is really important because a lot of if you've looked at the debates in incrementalism what happens is people don't care enough about the incremental population you're trying to deal with the only people who really tend to care are the people you're hitting to pay for it it's the offset population the pay for population in a comprehensive reform debate when you have all levers on the table people are willing to compromise more in certain areas in order to get something else. So, for example, pharmaceuticals or health plans may say, hey, if I can get more market share, if I can protect the problem that I'm seeing in the pharmaceutical industry, for example, if you've been reading the New York Times lately, how there's been a decline in the use of their pharmaceutical products, because why? More uninsured and more high high deductible plans. They say, well, hmm, maybe there is something in this for us, to do something, and P.S., I don't have to get blamed for it if nothing happens because I can I can take a very positive, progressive uh, uh, positioning um, um, uh, place in the debate. That's really very important. And here's the last point, and I think which builds on this this number eight. Notwithstanding the rhetoric of Senator Mo- uh, Senator uh, uh, McCain and Senator uh, Obama. The so-called sleazy special interest, or it's some of them like to be called stakeholders, uh, are uh, are actually uh, far more willing to and ready to engage in broader reform. And I could go chapter and verse every through every single one of them. I'm not just talking about consumer, labor, business. I'm talking about plans, biz, uh, plans, pharmaceutical manufacturers, device manufacturers, and healthcare providers. They're ready to engage and uh, and all you have to do is look at all the formation of the strange bedfellow coalitions they get that the current the current uh, baseline of our health care reform uh, our excuse me, our health care system is absolutely unsustainable they worry that the reaction to it over a period of time will be something far more negative than they see it currently are being debated and and they're seeing that the current policy debate is now something that they can live with that I would suggest opens up the door for a meaningful reform debate, and I and I'll end where I always end in every healthcare discussion: that Americans, as Roosevelt said, will always do the right thing, but it's only until they exhausted every option first. And I think we're pretty close, So Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> thank you, Chris. I um, just wanted to follow up on a couple of points, and one was, you know, certainly this discussion of, in in this case, the role of economic crisis, but I think just generally of, of crisis generally um, Chris brought it up you know in a couple of different ways in, in his points and Bob I was wondering you know kind of thinking of particularly the role of the presidency in in a time of crisis and in pushing change what how what kind of role does a president need to be taking well,
1: <clears throat> Theodore Roosevelt too, said the presidency is a bully pulpit and what I think the president needs to do it's absolutely fundamental, is not speak to uh, uh, special interests, but to the national well-being. What needs to be done that will serve the national well-being? Because this is a moment when the country, I think, is ready to think in larger terms, in broader ways. And I would just give you one example. The civil rights issue, Lyndon Johnson. Johnson understood that if he went to the country and emphasized repeatedly the idea that African-Americans had been abused minority, which certainly they were, that they were entitled to a kind of uh, uh, justice and, uh, uh, under the Constitution, that it would not be enough to sell the country on civil rights. What he needed to do was to explain to them that segregation in the South not only segregated the races in the South, But it segregated the South from the rest of the nation. See, at the time, people thought of the South as sort of the crazy ant you kept in the attic. And the way to do this was to desegregate the South. And then you would integrate the South into the rest of the nation. This would be an act of national well-being because instead of those tensions, instead of that divide, instead of the bloodshed, which we saw going on across the South, the South would become an integral part of the American uh, uh, national experience. It's so striking that Johnson was exactly right. Now, he knew he was going to pay a big price because he said to Bill Moyers, we're giving away the South to the Republican Party for as far into the future as any of us can see. He was absolutely right. But what he also understood was that this was going to open the door to the possibility that Southerners could run for president. They couldn't run for president until that point. The shadow of the Civil War still was so influential in deciding national politics. But think of who's been president since. The two Bushes, Jimmy Carter, Gore ran from, uh, you you get southerners who now feel they can run because they're an integral part of the nation. And Johnson, in a sense, sold civil rights to the country as a program of national well-being. And that's what I think has to be done now with uh, 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 national health care. That it's it's not something which is going to serve this interest or that interest, but it's vital for the economy and for the health of the nation in general. I, I think that's the tack that has to be taken.
0: Chris, any thoughts on the, the bully pulpit role of the presidency versus...
2: Yeah, I mean I think that uh, that cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes the president doesn't understand the, the full power the bully pulpit until later in their administration, but I think this one already has a good sense of that. And he tends to talk above these issues, the micro issues, and look at at the the broader interest. And I do think uh this this does have to be a broader message about the economy and it has to be not just health care but but health. I mean and and Mm -hmm. I think he can and and he's seen it in chicago I and mean, anyone who's talked to him knows I and mean, he's very concerned about this epidemic of obesity he, he does believe that there has to be a, a focus on prevention and wellness as well as broader health care financing reform and he sees it as an integral part of uh, strengthening our economy and our and i think i should add our long-term fiscal challenges because if we don't or, do this soon if we don't change how we deliver health care in this country, we won't be able to afford our current liabilities, let alone our future ones. And he gets this. And I think this is complicated, but I think he's very, very skilled at communicating over the complication part and focusing on the shared uh, benefit of moving, uh, again, both from an economic, a cost, and a coverage perspective.
1: One other thing I'd add is I think it's terribly important that this administration come up with some catchphrase. You know, when you, people don't remember much history in this. I know as a university teacher for 40-plus years, and they don't remember much history. But there are phrases, you know, Franklin Roosevelt who said, better a government that lives in the spirit of charity than one frozen in the ice of its own indifference. They remember certain catchphrases like the New Deal or, or, or the Square Deal, you see, or the Great Society. And if anybody can come up with a catchphrase now that will, in a sense, sell this reform program to the country, they'll be doing a a huge service to the Obama administration. And so he needs something. Johnson was so mindful of this, uh, uh, he was told he should call his program the Good Society. But Johnson being Johnson said, no, no, it has to be the Great Society. (laughs) And uh, uh, but that was a catchphrase that caught the public imagination goes back to this whole point about the bully pulpit so we need that as an inspirational uh, uh, force to drive this forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Bob I didn't have time to read all of your books before this session but um, did, did dip into a couple of them and in one of them I was struck where you were talking about the how presidents need to be Articulating a vision and you know broad goals, but then also to maintain um, flexibility and to be really engaged in in political give and take. And healthcare seems to me to be, um, you know, almost the epitome of that yes. kind of dynamic and and dichotomy. And I wonder if you both could speak to that. And what I think of you know particularly at at CAP, where we're engaged with a lot of of advocates on healthcare reform. Um, you know how much do you how much do we keep our, our eyes on the prize and how much do we need to be flexible about how we get there and um, Chris you had spoken about how you know big reform may be more doable than, than incremental reform which gives me um, you know a, a, a warm feeling inside but you know how, how do we think about about that that big goal and, and the the flexibility of getting there and whoever wants
1: to well start. briefly I would just say that. Uh, Political leaders, if they're seen as opportunistic, it's very self-destructive. But if they're seen as pragmatic, uh, being very flexible in the service of some larger goal or vision or design, it can be very constructive. And I couldn't agree more. You, know, you can't just have some grand vision that you're going to put forward and expect the country and, and people in Congress and people who have to knit together a, uh, a program that uh, deals with reality. So you're going to have trade-offs. You're going to have uh, a give and take. And uh, the way to do it, though, is to present it in the service of this larger design. And then people are not going to be resentful about that. They'll be practical about it. They won't see you as opportunistic. They'll see you as sensible and
2: pragmatic. And I I guess I'd say that, that it should be outcomes oriented. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be you have to have this program or this policy or this subsidy scheme or you know the lines in the stand. Um, can you still hear me? Yes. Uh, very carefully and uh, so I think he has to say affordable quality health coverage for every single American I think that's been his theme he has to maintain that and I, I but I, I do think that it's, it is important to have a vision not not a uh, legislative specs vision but an outcome vision and 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 some building blocks to get there if you are building a house and you don't have you don't use an architect and it, you, you know you don't know where you're going you just you build something you build something you build something you've got to know where you're going and I think that's frankly what the public is longing for they want to know where are you taking us and what will be the outcome for me and if that means there's some you know shared sacrifices tell me But, you know tell me what our ultimate objective is i think he gets this mm-hmm. and um, i think he can play an enormously constructive role by doing that the hill will be the hill You know. they are the legislators um, they will complain about the administration not doing enough or doing too much, and um, and you know you just you gotta stay you gotta stay focused, and you have to kind of allow and you have to work collaboratively with them. There is the job of the president in terms of the vision, in terms of laying out the 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 uh, arguments for. Uh, he is not going to be the micromanager of the legislative process. Uh, Now, he may have to, behind the scenes, deal with um, disagreements. He may have to, and I suspect he will, provide technical analysis from the administration to the Hill, which uh, will need it and will want it. But this can no longer be a, this cannot be the Obama health care plan, and it can't be anyone else's health care plan. It has to be an American health care plan, and I think he gets this.
0: Um, I think we'll open up for some questions from the audience, and people who are um, members of the press have questions first, that would be excellent, if you could raise your hands, and if the members of the press are, uh, okay, right here, okay, I'd say if they're still thinking of their questions, then we'll we'll go ahead with a couple from the audience, and please identify yourself.
3: Uh, uh, Jim Moody. Um, I'm interested that the uh, current discussion about the auto industry has not tied together with this very discussion because of anything we know about the auto industry, is that their le- so called legacy cost, most importantly, health care of all, is one of the major components of their problem. And yet somehow that's not being tied together, and it seems to me it ought to be. As, as Leah Akoko said, you say we spend more on health care than on steel, and every car has, what, $1,200? And part of that, and tied to that, is the fact that a European car coming here pays no health car care costs in Europe, because they pay for health care costs in Europe with a VAT, value added tax, and all exports are free of VAT. A, health, a car trying to travel that direction or any export from the U.S. pays health care here, and then it pays the VAT when it lands in Europe, pays two health care costs. So our competitiveness in the world is directly tied to this issue in a way that I haven't heard uh, you know, discussed in public debate. And may I add just one more point? The bugaboo that John McCain brought about government-controlled health care, oven washing—that has to be addressed. You know, Canada doesn't have a single payer. Every province is a single payer, and when you move from—but you have portability. So if you move from Saskatchewan to Ottawa, you're still covered. It seems that we need, might want to come up with something comparable to that—not 50 cent, not 50 payment centers, but maybe like the Federal Reserve. In fact, CAP has supported that. I know mm-hmm. the Council Economic uh, Community and Economic Development Business Community supports doing using the Federal Reserve districts as like twelve or whatever number it is of payment centers. So you get out of this bugaboo about Washington controlling everything. Two points. I appreciate your comments. Uh, well,
2: Let me try. Um, on, I, I do, I do agree with you that it has not been raised. Uh, as much as one might think about in the uh, ongoing GM and uh, car auto challenge and financing. But I do think it has been raised. I, I think it's been raised and raised and raised. I think here's the issue. Their, their argument, I think, the auto industry, is um, we're facing a calamity that's linked to the economy and we have to have a bridge payment to deal with this issue. Their argument is that um, that. And, and therefore, they don't like to highlight all the all the problems that they may or may not have self-imposed upon themselves. So that, that there is a reason that the, the other the other reason there are people who don't want there to be a federal buyout of straight liability for for decisions made along those lines. But I do want to say this: um, it is true what you say. We cannot be competitive internationally if we don't find a better way to deliver and finance healthcare. I mean, it just. It just is, is a huge challenge, and I think that's why you're seeing the employer community at the table in meaningful, meaningful ways, willing to, to suggest ways. Now, as for the whatever, um, you know, what do you want to call it, single payer or regional administrators or wh- whatever it is, I tend to not to uh, engage in the discussion about private versus public because I don't believe that in the real world there is any such dichotomy which yeah. is to say that we don't, in the Medicare program we no longer have, I mean you remember the, the famous line, I can't remember, John Burrow talked about it all the time, I can't remember who was the originator of it, but he said you know, you know I'm for the Medicare program and you tell the government to keep the hands off my program, okay. <laughs> well you know I mean there is this, uh, the, here's the reality Medicare is a publicly financed program, but it's administered through private insurers, right? Even the fee-for-service program is administered through private insurers. Now we also have these other options: PPOs, HMOs, in the Medicare program. For good or for bad, they're there. The Medicaid program. The Medicaid program. Anyone who is a child or a woman has private insurance of the Medicaid program. So, I, I, I because there's a lot of. Uh, ideology on the private-public debate I tend not to play into it because it ends up dividing more than unifying and and I think the reality is we're gonna have I think what the public generally is more comfortable with is uh, rules that are applied uniformly can be enforced at federal or state level financing mechanism that's rational that the federal government can have rules I think as a general rule people are concerned about the federal government having direct links to delivery but they like to have government having rules and incentives to improve delivery. so I, I'm not saying what that all translates into policy, I could tell you, but I think as a general rule, it doesn't make sense to engage into this kind of fight because then you just have you know are you going to have a public program or you're not going to have a public program? Well, we're going to have both. Shut up, you know <laughs> I mean,
0: then that's, I mean, that's
2: kind of how I feel about it.
0: No. Okay. No. Um, yeah, back. Mm-hmm.
4: Gary Kristofferson, former Fed and former colleague. <clears throat> if we're going to try and build a healthy America, there's two kinds of things to keep in mind about sort of fitting your concepts. One is back in 93-94, part of the discussion was how complete the bill should be, in other words, how detailed it should be. Should we just sort of stay here and stay away from down here? and therefore get away from some of the traps that are in the details. We have to face that issue again, be Interesting, what your comments on that part are. The second part, which sort of feeds to that, goes back to your bumper sticker, whether it's Healthy America or whatever you want to call these things, is the issue about looking at campaigns. And the recent campaign was about how do you motivate a whole bunch of people to unite behind a sort of basic concept, accept that concept, and that drives the rest. So if you look at what we ought to be proposing, to what level of detail, and then how do we sell it, the 30-second spot in the elevator. How might you see us approaching this a little more than what you've already talked about?
1: Well, I think that uh, we're in a very good situation at the moment because Obama is such an appealing man. And he has such a uh, charismatic quality. And I think I couldn't agree more. Uh, The presidency has become such an important element in Selling this kind of uh, huge reform to uh, to the nation, to the Congress, now Congress will be moved if the country is powerfully behind what the president is asking and Franklin Roosevelt is the model for how to proceed here. Herbert Hoover attacked him as a chameleon on plaid you see uh, someone who kept changing coloration and form and uh, But that was fine, because what he kept before the public was the larger design. And people, indeed, I'd love to tell the anecdote that after he died, somebody stopped Mrs. Roosevelt on the street and said to her, Mrs. Roosevelt, I miss the way your husband used to speak to me about my government. And that's the measure that you want to use. And so I think that Obama has to find a way to speak to the country about this in. And I think he will probably need to make at some point a major speech about this issue as it goes before the Congress. Because it will, uh, even though he'll have a Democratic Congress, I don't have to tell all of you in this audience, the divisions there will be so pronounced. Uh, he's going to have to motivate them, drive them. And uh, he will be able to do it, I think, with his rhetoric and with his appeal to the uh, mass
2: public. And Garrett, to your question about the details, just to, I'll just hit that one. Um, I think, uh, you know, details do kill. That's true in health reform. Um, and I remember I, I hearkened back to a statement Senator Mitchell talks about quite a bit these days. He, he, ta- he was asked about what lessons does he applied to from the I- Irish peace talks to health care, and he said. <laughs> And I, in fact, that's how I got him back to do healthcare again. I said, if you can do that, you can do that. And he said, well, healthcare is harder. And um, but uh. he said, um, the one thing I really learned in that in that negotiation was there would be a point in which if I tried to jam an answer down, then we would lose consensus. And so at that point, we deferred some of those questions to an independent entity that was acceptable to all people. To work through those issues, and that kept the broader agreement intact, and and I think the danger of talking about boards uh, at the front of the end of the debate is everyone f- fears how big and broad and how you know all-encompassing it could be, but I think at the end of a process, it becomes a logical place uh, to end up. For those particular areas that might hold back or weigh down uh, progress.
0: Right here.
5: Um, uh, yeah, thing, uh, you, sorry. Okay. I was. I didn't see you. I, I was just going to comment on the um, the uh, catchphrase. Um, a few years ago, Michael Tomaski wrote a great article in the American Prospect called "The." It was. I think it's called "The Common Good" or "It's All About the Common Good." And. He was pointing out that this would also benefit the Democratic Party to get away from the interest group thing. But I think that it also applies here. And I think that that would be one concept if if, every, if other people here want to compete with me on coming up with something. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about Capitol Hill because I know that, like, Conyers has a plan. And I'm not trying to reopen single payer. I'm just curious how you see that playing out and, and if you think ultimately... Whether it's Obama, presumably being the key player, whatever can that work itself out so that it it accrues to the to the advantage of uh, of reform and still be a sort of meaningful policy instead of some kind of stupid patchwork or you know something. Um,
2: well, you know I'm I, I think that. Uh, The degree to which that there is a, I'm going to refer to this as a public program or a single-payer type mechanism or or something that moves towards that. The the degree to which that gets serious attention will be to the degree to which people say, one, there are votes for it, and two, um, there is a specific uh, benefit for moving there. And I would suggest to you it would be cost savings. It would be an issue of it's cheaper to do that than do something else and and uh, I think that uh, in this legislative process the way I try to talk about single-payer is you know many people in this room probably support single-payer if I took away all the Republicans and said go to Florida uh, and I said Democrats you're only in power and I said will you vote up or down a single-payer Would a single-payer Past the Finance Committee I would say that it's probably unlikely and just to give you a, a context of the politics of this the but I do believe that there are people who see the benefit of um, in this in the narrative of competition and choice a public program option and and there are people who feel that if you provide that option People will migrate to that option in meaningful, significant ways. That may be a more politically viable way to go about doing it, and that obviously is an approach that s- President-elect Obama has has embraced. Even that will uh, entail huge, huge challenges on Capitol Hill. And uh, you know, to me, uh, I look at this debate as, um, you know, can you get it? Fine good. If you can't get it, what do I get in return for not having I mean, not, it's, it's got to be outcome oriented. It has to be do I have affordable health care for every American and do I have special protections for low income, low income population and is the program sustainable? And so you know, these are big, big issues that will really be debated and considered in the context of the legislative process, but I do want to give you some context of where I think this plays out.
3: We have Time for one final question. Sorry, to send that back. Thank you, Ron Levin Epstein. I'm interested in Dr. Dalek's uh, comments with regard to Afghanistan yes. and medical health reform. Um, given the likelihood of U.S. continuation in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future, can you s- envision any condition? under which health reform could occur while maintaining U.S. presence in Afghanistan?
1: Yes, I mean, I I think one can imagine that we will go forward with some major reform programs because I think my guess would be that Obama is going to try and mute these foreign policy issues. Now, you can only do that for so long if you are losing men. If you are suffering losses in such a war. Uh, and an example again here is Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, when he escalated the war in the summer of July 28th, to be exact, 1965, he did it in a press conference. He announced that 100,000 more troops were going into Vietnam. But in that same press conference, he announced that one of his daughters was pregnant that Abe Fortas was becoming an associate justice of the Supreme Court. And he purposely did that in order to mute what he was doing there. In January of 1966, he agreed with his Joint Chiefs that they were going to add another 120,000 troops in Vietnam. But he said, I'm going to announce it 10,000 troops a month. He wasn't going to announce it all at once because he understood that that would then create controversy and divert attention from the great society. But he could not finesse the issue for very long. And people began to understand that this was turning into a major war. So, you know, what we're talking about is a kind of gamesmanship here. And initially, one assumes that the priorities for this new administration will be healthcare reform, will be, first of all, the domestic uh, economy and finding ways to uh, uh, recreate prosperity or to drive the economy forward. Uh, So I'm hopeful that initially this will be muted. You can't mute it entirely, because as long as American troops are going to be involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think you're going to see loss of life. The New York Times and other papers will be carrying stories about this, but nevertheless, It can be something which is less than front and center and is more a a, a side issue for the moment. But if it continues for two, three, four years, and you lose a lot of lives, uh, it costs a lot of money, it's going to be an issue that will divert attention from the reform program. Timing. Timing is going to be hugely important, as it always is in these reform efforts. It was for Roosevelt, it was for Johnson. Johnson understood when he won his massive landslide that he had maybe one year. He said that to his aides. We have maybe one year. Not because of Vietnam, but just because he felt the energy for this kind of change would evaporate after a year or so. so but so far, my feeling is that Obama's been very shrewd about this. He's gone, he's, he's stepped forward. To announce uh, his appointments and to create the sense of, of movement of forward motion, uh, the historian Richard Hofstadter once said that Theodore Roosevelt was the master therapist of the middle classes. He created the feeling that much was happening when very little was going on. You see so you need to be not just the uh, advocate of the bully pulpit, you need to be a master psychologist and uh, it's a hell of a job. I don't know why anyone wants it. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I
0: think that the I think your remarks about timing are, you know, probably particularly appropriate given that that we're thinking about, you know, how are we, how can that, how can healthcare be part of solving our economic crisis? How does that crisis, um, you know, propel change on the the healthcare front as well? Um, and I think certainly the. You know, cautions about competing priorities are are very true, but I also think that the, you know, the momentum and the drive that a new president has, um, you know, even without some of those other circumstances, is is certainly concentrated on the on the front end as well. Um, please join me in thanking both Bob Dalek and Chris Jennings for being here this morning, and um, thank you for your attention to our healthcare program.